Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. My name is Bill Kennedy, and our special guest today is Mariah Peterson. Hey, Mariah. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, life is good. I can't complain. I can't complain. Everybody's healthy, and uh, things are at least. I, I feel like they're pretty good in Miami. Where, where are you? Where are you coming from? Let everybody know uh, kind of where you're coming from. So I live in Spanish Fork, Utah. It's uh, about an hour south of Salt Lake. I love Salt Lake City. It's so beautiful there. Yeah. Well, we, we've been just sitting in a pile of um, smoke. The wildfires. We have a little um, uh, a bowl, right, surrounded by mountains. So we get major inversion. And so the smoke's just been sitting on us for weeks. Totally forgot about that. Yeah, everybody on the West Coast is, uh, oh my God. Yeah, well, that could be a whole show unto itself. But we are not here to talk about that right now. We're here to talk about you. So give uh, give everybody who's listening like the two minutes on what you're doing today. I guess highlights for me as Mariah is I, I kind of, I have a day job where I work as a data engineer, um, working on bringing in and managing uh, data pipelines from external sources. It's great and fun and all the SQL you could ever want. Um, but after my day job, I do the fun stuff. So um, I, uh, I get to do, I do coding on Twitch. I have a conference, a Go conference I organize. I do several meetups. I, I've been dedicating some time to getting a Go course on a website, a free one. And I play with my dogs. I take my dogs to the dog park. Like that's pretty much what I do when I'm not working. Yeah, I don't, I don't hear much free time other than the dogs here. Oh, Netflix. <laughs> what show are you watching on Netflix right now? Because I've seen everything I think I want to watch. And it's a bummer when basically I just sit and watch the two minute previews of everything for like an hour. So yesterday I put on Bake Squad. I really like the competition shows because they're super light and I don't have to pay attention. And so like Bake Squad is just these people make desserts, like these famous pastry chefs just compete against each other to make desserts for somebody's party like super light i you know i don't like those shows like i was watching forged in fire or something and i thought that was kind of cool at one point but i don't know why i stay away from uh i stay away from those shows that's interesting so you like that baking one that one that one's been good that makes me feel good yeah all right maybe i'll have to watch it i mean been watching CSI Miami too, but like no, it's too. I'm trying to escape when I sit down <laughs> and watch TV. That's that's what the baking show is for. Like no brain function. Okay, we're gonna go. We're gonna change gears a little bit. And um, my favorite question to ask every guest is for them to go back into the time machine. And I want you to think about the first time you worked on a computer, whatever that was. Then. What do you mean by work? Does it have to be like actually working or just like using? Could be playing. That first memory you have using a computer, a very first memory, the first one pops into your head. Oh, I was probably like three or four. I Like we have it on video. I got computer games for Christmas and we recorded it on the new camcorder and I was just playing dumb i it was like a math blasters game or one of those humongous entertainment 
Freddy Fish go complete the journey by making matching puzzles. Like, yeah, that's pretty little. Wait, you do, do you remember that because there's videotape? No, I remember the games. Because I think my very first memory I can even remember is kindergarten. Maybe I'm five drinking spoiled milk, like trauma stuff, not fun stuff. Okay, so that's a computer you got at home. And, and already at like four years old, you're playing games on it. Pretty much, yeah. Do you have a, a memory then where you're using it now, not necessarily for games, but maybe you're using it for school or, I don't want to say more productive, but I'm going to say more productive. <laughs> we had a computer lab, right, in school where we would do, we mostly played like on the kid picks technology where we would just like draw pictures. We had the typing classes. But I think, like, that was just fine. But I think the first time I figured out I could, like, use the computer to do stuff I wanted to do, right, besides just messing around and learning how to type, um, was in fifth grade when we had, we entered um, a school district video competition, right? So we were using the computers to make and edit videos. And we were, we did the intros and the design work and all that stuff. In fifth grade, wow. I mean, my video won, so I'm never gonna forget that. <laughs> Do we still have that video? Can we can we see it? No, I, I, <laughs> I've been looking for it online. I'm like trying to find the video and it's been lost to the archives. So you won a, what was it, a, a countywide? It was, it was, yeah, kind of. It was the school district and we were the largest school district in the state of Utah at the time. Okay, wait, let, let me, I'm going to age you a little bit because I have no choice here. What year did you graduate high school? 2012. All right. So we, what, do you remember what camera you used? I think there were these flip cameras back then or something. There were was... definitely flip cameras, but my school actually had professional cameras that we were allowed to rent and use. So it was a $10,000 camera we were, they were giving to fifth graders to go use and make videos on. Can you believe that? I know. I'm like, what the heck? What? what? <laughs> What software? $10,000. Here, here, fifth grader, have a $10,000 camera. I mean, and we were using, I mean, I think we just used whatever was standard on the Mac at the time, which was, I don't think they paid for with their final cut. So I think we were just using iMovie or whatever, but. Wow. They were definitely giving us a lot of tools that you don't usually trust 10-year-olds with. Let's let's move a little ahead like you're about to enter high school. Are you still making these sorts of videos before you're entering high school? Is that oh yeah, I made videos all through high school. I was a I may I applied to be a YouTube partner in high school and made a whole seven bucks off of the YouTube partner program before they kicked me out for not having enough subscribers. So like I, I loved making videos. Back around two thousand four and five with my kids, we were doing these like three minute I Mandy show kind of like skits. So we would write the skits and film them. What were you doing? Were you doing skits? Uh, similar to that, I guess. I don't know, but like we played with toys. Have you ever seen the, the super popular like unboxing toy videos and stuff that they do now? Like I did that when I was little, like probably nine or 10. And then by the time I got into high school, um, we were doing mostly they ended up being school projects where we like do like parody music videos or, um, we would interpret like literature projects where you like reinterpret books and kind of parody them and stuff like that. It's kind of like mostly how I ended up finding the time to work that in. Wow. So 
What else were you interested in in high school other than all this video stuff? I mean, I don't know. I worked. I watched TV. I didn't do much. I did in high school. I did a lot of homework. I was one of those nerd kids that spent 50 hours a day doing homework. Um, taking as many AP classes as I could. I did a lot of math and physics. I did take a Java programming class in high school. That was the first time I programmed. Um, but I, the people in the class were weird and I quit. But yeah, no, I was kind of just into being, I, I was kind of into being the smartest person in the room. I think that was my goal in high school was to be the smartest person in the room. That's not my goal anymore, but it definitely was then. Wow. And outside of the fact that you didn't enjoy the people in the in the room when you were learning Java, did you find anything? Were you interested in the programming back then? Or was it more of a, like, was it a drag? Was it cool? Irrelevant? No, I definitely thought it was cool. I, I mean, I didn't, the projects were a little weird. Um, but, like, they gave us a... Um, at one point in the class, they gave us an entire Java compiled version of Super Mario Brothers, like in the source code. And they said, here's a source code, go mess with it. And we got to just mess with the video game. And I mean, most people just ended up changing the pictures. Like, so they made Mario like a bird. And so you were playing with a bird or they put pictures of themselves instead of Mario. So then they were playing Super Mario Brothers. But it was interesting uh, trying to like figure out the commands. I was like, I was like, can I make him go backwards? And then I ended up quit not playing with it and doing my assignments. But yeah, we learned a little bit about networking. It was on a LAN network, so we were able to write like a chat network across the wired computers and then stuff like that. I guess it was pretty. I mean, you learn the basics. I I definitely. Everything I learned in that class, I took with me to college when I was t taking the C++ class. I knew all about the functions, all about the objects, like object oriented was all the stuff I learned in the Java class. Like that, the C++ class was super easy because I'd learned all of that fundamentals in high school. But get, let's get back to high school for a second, because it seems to me your passion is really in in video. It's producing uh, video because you're, you're, you're trying to make a little money on YouTube, right? You're, you're, you're leveraging this for school, you're doing that. So as you're approaching um, graduation in high school, I imagine that you're thinking about going to some film school, aren't you? Oh, I was gonna do physics all day, every day. I wanted to be a physicist. I wanted to be an, a, a nuclear particle physicist. That was what I was going to college for. Where did that come from? Just, I took a physics class the same time I was taking my programming class. I took a physics class and I just really liked it. I really liked learning how things worked. Right? Like, Whoa. and it was super cool. Like, and the math worked and I could predict how things would work. And it, it like the real world mirrored what I did on a piece of paper. Like, how would that, that never happened before. So when you were going to go to university, for you were thinking what the end of that would be a professor or something or? Yeah, I was planning on like going bachelor, master's, PhD, being a tenured professor in physics. Like that was my goal. With a specialty, you had it with a specialty in? 
at the time in high school, I was thinking like nuclear particle physics that changed, you know, over time. But like, that was kind of what I was thinking at the time. So you, you apply to university, you get in and you start your physics um, degree. Yeah. Did you end up finishing with a physics degree? Yes, I did. Wow. So what's happening with your passion for producing video at the time? You, you must still be doing that in university. I started to, but I kind of just quit. I was, I was, I, I working, I was going out, having fun with friends. I guess um, with iPhones, it became a whole lot easier just to make small ones, right? Like post things on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever. So that became way more convenient. So like I would just do little blurbs or like we'd go out to a party, I would record us at a party. I just, I didn't really keep producing big major videos because even though I liked the production, I didn't like editing them. Like vlogs were really popular at the time and I'm not a vlogger. Like I don't want to go talk about what I did that day kind of a thing. Um, so yeah, I kind of just in college didn't do any video stuff pretty much. So we, we, you started university in 2012, right? That's when you graduated high school. Okay. Um, was that physics degree difficult for you? Did you, was it, a, did you just enjoy that the whole way? Because that's a really like hardcore. Oh, it was hard. It was definitely uh, harder than I expected. Like I was used to getting straight A's and I did not get straight A's in that physics degree. Like the math was way too hard for that. But it was still, yeah, no, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I did a lot of, we were required to do research, um, in the physics department required us to do research as the thesis to graduate. So I got to work, I worked in a laser lab. I did, um, laser research. Um, I worked as a TA. I, I really liked being a TA and helping people with their intro to physics stuff. You know, I, I had a great time. Quantum mechanics was, was the funnest class I took. I loved that. Like it was just crazy i don't know i, I loved it i i loved learning the math was hard but um we ended up we you know had study groups and uh i still have all my physics textbooks like i really loved it and i like was i got into graduate school and that's what i was planning on doing you know physics was great everybody's gonna say that their degree was the hardest but if you look at um, standardized testings like the MCAT or the LSAT or the GMAT or whatever you use to get into graduate school, they weigh those against um, a GPA and basically and what your degree is for that GPA. So you can you can get a lower standardized testing score and balance that out with a physics degree and you'll get in with the same with somebody else who has had a higher testing score. So they leverage the fact that physics is one of the hardest majors um, when you're going into graduate school um, for a lot of things. Uh, and it's just because the math is hard. I mean, you're doing harder math in physics than a lot of mathematicians end up doing, right? Like math at a certain point becomes conceptual and theoretical and physics math is uh, numeric. Um, so yeah, it was the math classes were hard. The physics classes that used math were hard. We got to do research with it. Like the fact that the program is very hands-on. We did a lot of research was like super rewarding. Um, we felt like we were discovering new things. I mean, what kind of undergrad gets to do research and then publish it? Like that's not super common, but that's definitely 
part of what we got to do in our program and it was super rewarding and like i don't know uh, physicists we're all kind of conceited and we think we're the smartest people in the room so by doing hard things and continuing to think you know you you get to be smarter than everybody else like you go talk to a physicist and they're definitely going to start flexing on how much they know it's great and and you and you were working with lasers I did. I worked in a, so my research, I did, my undergraduate research was in a laser lab. Um, so we had a high powered, high intensity infrared laser. And I mean, how many people get to say that when they go to work, they get to play with lasers? Like that's not super common. And that was one thing I definitely said a lot when I was in college. I'm feeling like you were in the movie Real Genius at this point. Did you, did you cook any, did anybody, does everybody ask you about cooking popcorn with the lasers after that movie? I did burn my finger on it. Like that was fun. Have you seen the movie Real Genius? I haven't seen the movie Real Genius, no. Oh, okay. Now I'm giving you homework. I, it's one okay. of my favorite movies as with these people. That I, I'll go watch it. Yeah. They're, they're working on lasers and you, now I've kind of ruined it already, but I'm not going to say it again. So you got to watch Real Genius. That, that's the first thing that popped into my head. Were your, were your friends in university also um, in the same major as you? Or did you have kind of like a diverse group of friends taking different? So I kind of did half and half. I So I had a group of friends that I hung out with that were at school, like the people that I would text about doing homework or the people that I would, you know, like definitely there were the friends that you did the school life with. But like, I pretty much kept school to on campus. So I spent 10, 12 hours a day on campus. And as soon as I went off campus, I went to my different group of friends. Um, and that was the friends like I'd go out to the Latin club with, or I'd go hang out with, we'd go get food or whatever. That's interesting. You had kind of two sets of friends, the ones for the academics and the one for the social. Yeah, definitely. And I didn't, Part of that was because I, I, I was able to still live with my parents. I didn't live on campus. And I feel like if you lived on campus and prescribed to like the on campus, you were more likely to keep those friends. But I lived 15 minutes away, which was far enough. Doesn't seem like far, but it was far enough that um, like they, the people that I was around geographically weren't going to the same university I was like they were doing other things with their life. Do you regret not? Being on campus for your definitely not, definitely not. No, one hundred percent. I think it saved me a ton of money. I got to meet people I didn't wouldn't have associated with. Um, I wasn't really a fan of the campus culture. I don't know. I I was. It was definitely the right decision for me. And like I said, I was spending 10, 12 hours on campus every day. So it's not like I didn't get my fill of it. It was almost nice to kind of breathe and leave <laughs> at the end of the day. Interesting. Well, your parents, so now you, I mean, you're living at home during a time where you're in your late teens, early twenties. Did your parents treat you differently when you were in university or they still treated you like you were 10? Oh, they definitely didn't. I pretty much had the freedom to do whatever I wanted except for come home at 4 a.m. That was the one thing that my mother did not like. I could come home at 2 a.m., but 4 a.m. was too late. That was it. <laughs> Are you sneaking in windows at 4 a.m.? to get? No, I went in the front door. She was sitting, <laughs> like, sitting on the couch like, what are you doing? Why aren't you answering my phone calls? I'm like, I was at McDonald's. Like, I wasn't, I was at McDonald's with uh, the guy who actually ended up, my future uh, brother-in-law, actually. I was at McDonald's. I was out at 4 a.m. with my future brother-in-law. So it's not like I was doing anything bad. I was just 
out with friends and she wasn't expecting to have to wake up and me not be home, I guess. I don't know. You know, it's one of the reasons I kicked the kids out of the house when they graduate high school, whatever it was they're going to do, right? Like you have to go live on university or you got to go live somewhere because I, because I didn't want to be a parent like that, them living in my own home, right? Like you got to be able to go home at four o'clock in the morning and nobody asking you. I still got to come home at two. So it's not like the end of the world, but no, I, I mean, I, I definitely do think it was the right thing. For me, I did have a lot of freedom. My parents didn't hover at all. So, as you're as you're almost as you're nearing your end of the of this four year degree, I guess you're thinking now graduate school and more physics. Yeah, I did. I mean, I went to, I uh, applied to a ton of graduate schools. Um, I ended up getting in at the University of Oklahoma. So I I uh, I. They had a quantum optics research program, which was what I was interested in at the time. Um, and quantum optics is kind of the physics conceptual underground, not underground, but like under foundational work for quantum computing. So quantum computing, you have, you have um, quantum optics, quantum information, material physics, quantum, and then you put all those three together and you get quantum computing. So that's what I planned on doing. And, but I only, I, I went, and I went to graduate school. I just only went for one semester. So. So you moved though, all the way to Oklahoma. So I you're did. out of the house for the first time. Like that's the first time you're really on your own. Oh, that wasn't the first time. I lived in Uruguay for a year and a half in college. So. At, during your four year undergraduate degree. I took a break. Yeah, I took a break and I did a a church service mission for 18 months in Uruguay all by myself. Okay, let's step back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you woke up one day and said, um, I'm going to go to Uruguay and, and do this mission. Like you just woke up one morning. Kind of almost like that. So, um, so with my church, they had Previous, they, they, they had just kind of did a realignment of policy. And so they had made it. So before they didn't want like a lot of liability of like college kids. So they, and like, they don't really have like chaperones or anything. They're just kind of sending you out and you're going and doing it on your own. And so before they'd been like, no, you have to be 21. Like we want more mature people, but then they changed it to 19. And I was like three months away from my 19th birthday. So I was like, yeah, why not? Like it was, yes. Yeah, so it was almost like waking up one morning and saying, yeah, I'm going to do this. And so, yeah, I ended up going to Uruguay, was there for 18 months. It was great. I hated the food. The people were nice though um learned some spanish and then yeah came back and went back to school so i did one semester before and then finished the degree in uh just under three years after that and you, i guess you had to tell the university you're you're going to take a hiatus didn't matter yeah well they were fine with it the religion it was it was a religious university so they were they're pretty accustomed to being like yeah whatever you can uh you can take a break we'll defer they they, they like three-year deferments were pretty common they didn't care. Now this is the first time you're really on your own and it's a different country. And did you travel there by yourself or was there a group? Oh, a group. I was with a group. I was definitely with a group of people. There were like 13 or 14 of us. 
we went to Argentina first to learn Spanish, kind of like a, it's kind of like a school, I guess, institute, like a six week deep dive into culture and language. And then we went out and it was in Uruguay and living on my own. I had, you know, we'd have like roommates and we'd go out like in small groups and talk to people and help them wherever we could and try and figure out what kind of Spanish they were speaking, because it definitely wasn't normal Spanish. I mean, I don't know what normal Spanish is, but it's definitely not the same Spanish you hear here. It was it was fun, yeah. Yeah, that had to be almost life-changing too, right? Like, But you must have been a little nervous. Oh, I was terrified. Yeah, okay. I, I would have been terrified too. It was definitely not good for my anxiety, but like, if you want to prove you can do hard things, go live in another country by yourself can prove you can do hard things. But I, I imagine after a couple of months, you, you relaxed a little bit when you knew everything was, when, when you got into a routine. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It didn't, it didn't take long. Um, it helps that, you know, you go out with a bunch of people who are in a pretty similar boat to you. So, you know, if you're all going through the same experiences. So when you get back to the U.S., that must really have changed you a little bit in terms of how you were living in the U.S. before and after, like, it, right? I mean, it must put a, you start to appreciate, I, I always say, I say to my kids all the time, in the U.S., after you graduate high school, you should have to go out into the into the world like that, even if it's just for two weeks. I, I'm a fan of, a lot of countries do, like, mandated military service for a year. I mean, I'm not saying we have to do it, but, like, the fact that that gets kids out they're, you know, they're living on their own, they're experiencing something and they're traveling, right? Like, I definitely totally a fan of like, you got to go experience outside of what you're used to in order to appreciate other people and where they're coming from. Because it's way different when you're the outsider. Yeah, and living conditions is, they're completely, and you're on a mission. So you're seeing, you know, pretty desperate situations too that you're trying to help out with. Definitely. Yeah. No. Um, you see, you know, you, you end up interacting somehow. The only people that want to pay any attention to you seem to be the people who are kind of in the di most dire of situations. Right. And so you see a lot of poverty and a lot of people who are just trying to get by. And Uruguay is, I, I mean, I don't want, it's not, it's one of the wealthiest, higher standard of living countries in South America. So I definitely wasn't like in squalor or around people in a whole lot of squalor, but it's definitely, definitely way different than uh, here, right? Like even their middle class is, would, I would, the, the middle class in Uruguay seemed like they were pretty destitute to me compared to all of the stuff that I have around me normally. So you, you get back to the U.S. and now you got to move back into your parents' house again, right? Like after all that freedom. I mean, I remember after university, after spending one year at home and I was, I basically never went home. I tried everything I could not to be home because I, you're under my house, my rules kind of thing, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I know. I mean, I was just trying to save money. I was trying to get through college with as little student debt as possible. Um, just like for me, I, a lot of people can work through college and kind of avoid that. But for me, um, I, just like for my mental health and where I was, I, I kind of, I worked minimal hours. I tried to keep it like 10 to 12 hours a week and that's not really enough to 
pay a good uh, rent and food and all that. So it was definitely for the cost perspective of um, just saving money, right? At my parents' food, my parents' house, I didn't pay a lot of rent. I just kind of went to school. But I, I was home. I pretty much only slept there. I got up in the morning. I like ate breakfast somewhere else. I mean, you know, I, I was pretty active. I would went to the between school work and the gym. I was home only to sleep. So it was it was it it wasn't that bad. So so now you're in Oklahoma. You're going to study um, the next phase of your physics uh, education here. Optical. You say quantum optical. Quantum optics. Yeah. Quantum optics. The, the the sound of that already sounds like. Well, and any but anybody that knows their stuff knows that quantum optics tends to be like an electrical engineering initiative. It's not really. It doesn't really belong in physics. So the fact that I found it through physics is kind of weird, um, but it's definitely one. But that's still, it's playing with lasers, right? And once you start playing with lasers, you never stop playing with lasers. So. So that means that you have a laser in the house right now. <laughs> uh, somewhere, I'm sure. I mean, technically, we all do. All of our little Bluetooth infrared little motion detectors are lasers. So. Excellent. Okay. No, you don't have the keychain laser. <laughs> no, I don't have a keychain laser. I don't want to. Most of those come from China. Well, the the problem with lasers is when you get the cheap ones, they're not really super focused. They have a lot of escape light that goes out in different directions, and it can actually be potentially pretty dangerous. So I don't tend to keep lasers around. But you said that you, you go to Oklahoma, you start this graduate degree, but you're there for one semester. I was, yeah. I what was happened? not... I was not ready for the pressure, I think, of, I'm kind of an all or nothing in personality. I don't really like to jog. I'm a, I sprint through things. And just like emotionally and mentally, I don't think I was quite ready to do 40 hours of school plus 40. They, they expected 40 hours in the lab working on your research plus your 40 hours of graduate degree. Um, the math was hard. I was... Um, still trying to figure out my mental health situation. I had just started seeing a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and I just, I, I was not mentally or emotionally ready for that commitment, like literally to give up my life, what, like more than my life, right? Because you're giving up two lives if you're doing 40 hours of schoolwork plus 40 hours of lab work, that's two jobs to get make $19,000 a year. Like, I wasn't ready for that. And so, but the first semester they said, we did like a careers course. They said, here are careers you can have. And so like literally in that course, they're like, yeah. And so once you spend five to seven years getting your PhD in physics, you can go work as a software engineer. That's one of the most common jobs for PhD physicists is to go in data science or software. And I'm like, I don't need to, graduate degree to go into software like there are so many people hiring for software jobs back in utah like i almost got a software job in college when i didn't even have the credentials why am i wasting my money doing this so i just like i i made the decision like for my uh for my mental health and well-being as well as to line my pocketbook because nineteen thousand dollars a year just meant more debt than i wanted to get in i just i moved back i moved back to utah i didn't move in with my parents 
I moved in with my brother. But yeah, I, I moved back to Utah and I started applying for jobs. And I was like, I'm not done. Graduate school was just not where I was going. What year is it when you get back to it? 2017. So, uh, so December 2017 is when I moved back. So I started, I got my first job in uh, February 2018. Okay. Within two months. So it was not a bad turnaround. No, no. It's, I, I tell everybody it's going to take eight to 12 weeks to get a job if your resume and experience is there. I did. I did have some things working for me. One, I yeah. was a physics degree. That's going to get everybody intrigued. Two, female. That's not very common in Utah. And so that was the, the, those were working for me. How many jobs did you apply to? Uh, 150. Whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. So in January of 18, you applied to 150 jobs. Between December, right? So yeah, from December to January, I applied to 150 jobs. So you applied to 150, were you using the job sites, I guess? Like, oh, I was like, using a job board. I was doing it wrong. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just using Indeed, you know, ZipRecruiter, whatever job board I could use, I was applying. I had no clue what I was doing. That's not necessarily wrong. I mean, it was a numbers game now. So you threw 150 yeah. resumes out there and five people called you back, essentially. Yeah. And then how many of those five wanted to hire you? Two. Two. So what were the two jobs that you had in front of you then? So I had, I had a QA uh, manager at a startup that had three employees or an associate software engineer um, at a different startup that had 200 employees. I'm guessing you went with the software or 200. I did go with the software engineer. Um, they had a better guarantee to give me a paycheck. Um, and that was kind of important at that point in time. Yeah, well, now you have to pay rent, right? I mean, your brother's- Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Brother's only going to carry you so far, so. Well, I mean, he would have let me live with him forever, but I moved out pretty quick. I was like, mm, you have four kids. You don't need me. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Oh, so what was this first job? What was the languages you were using? What was your role? What was your task? Um, so it was a backend developer in Go. So I was only Golang, which was great. I mean, I learned it pretty quick. We were using Kubernetes. Um, for all of our deployments, we did all of our CI/CD with GitLab, and it was a fintech company. There's a lot of here in Utah. We have quite a few fintech companies. Um, that seems to be kind of where we're finding our little niche. And I was working on bringing in data, right? Bringing in large amounts of data from third-party credit bureaus and uh, putting that, just transforming that and putting it into a database. That's pretty much what we ended up doing. I had a Huge learning curve, though. I had to figure out Git and uh, command line and Go and tools. And I didn't even know what VS Code was or Vim. You had no experience for this. You had a physics degree. Well, I had done, a, I mean, in physics, we do a lot of programming. Like, But it's like I was using MATLAB and Mathematica to solve partial differential equations. It's a very different kind of programming, but yeah, I mean, I did it. I did a lot of programming. But why do you think they offered you this job? I mean, I, I, I definitely, it was a stroke of luck. Mostly, I think the manager was a nice guy. Uh, the manager 
they were they were having a huge initiative to kind of push diversity. This was a very one of one I think the most diverse company that I've seen in Utah as far as just like variety of people that you have there. I interviewed well. I mean like I obviously didn't have a lot of conceptual knowledge but like I interview well. I had a lot of drive. I had a lot of willingness to learn. They gave me a take-home test and I was able to struggle my way through that in eight hours, but you know, whatever. Like, I got it done. So I proved that if you gave me enough time, I could figure it out. And so they basically said, okay, we'll give you a mentor and see how it goes, right? You know, give you three months, six months with a mentor, see how it goes. And I, I think I did pretty okay. I think I kind of surprised him. But yeah, it was definitely, I definitely luck. I don't think that a lot of people with my coding background would have gotten a job that quickly. You know, I've heard for the last 10 years that, I'm going to generalize this, that women tend not to apply to jobs unless they can check every box on the job description, where men, they can check like two uh, they'll apply. And I feel like you weren't trying to check every box on all these jobs. You were just like... Oh, I was applying to senior principal. If it said software engineer, I was applying. I definitely was not fitting that norm, but it's true. But even after the fact, now when I go apply, then I was desperate, right? I was just like, I need a job in software to not feel like I failed out of graduate school. But now when I look at job applications, I try to check every box. I don't know what makes... Four years this shouldn't make the difference to now where I'm judging myself against the job criteria. Then I didn't care. Now I do. So. And the job you got, you never would have even applied for if you if you had taken that approach, right? Definitely. Yeah, I, I find this really interesting, and, I, and we don't. I don't want to talk about that here, but I just I just find it interesting that the to a point where. I have to look at the job descriptions here at Arden to make sure that they're a little bit more generalized, I think, at times, because I don't want somebody not to apply because they don't think they, they fit this one tiny box. Like it, it affects at least the way I try to write job descriptions here at Arden. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's not. Yeah. But it's funny to hear you say that I don't take the same approach. So wait, so how long were you at this job then, this first job? How long? I worked there for just under a year. So what was going on just under a year? You got, you, you learned it all and you got bored? No. So I had just under a year I had, was learned to go. I'd actually moved from the go team, from the team I was on to the, um, I was doing machine learning engineering for two months and, but I had started a meetup. And as soon as I started a meetup and I spoke at a meetup, so I had gone to go for con. I'd done a workshop on machine learning and Go, and I put together a talk on data science and Go for a meetup while simultaneously starting to run the Utah chapter Women Who Go meetup. And uh, a different company was just like, hey, we want to sponsor your meetup and we want you to come work for us because you gave an awesome talk and we'll pay you more money. And the job where I had working at couldn't match it because they had put a freeze on all raises for three months. And I'm like, well, if you're not going to give me a raise for three months, I'll go to the other company. And so like people after a year, I guess I was being recruited to go somewhere else. Having a few months of go under your belt, you're already organizing a go meetup. You're already giving talks on all the machine learning and stuff. And 
that ended up creating enough of a brand for you where other companies were coming in going, we, we need you. We need you to help us solve problems. Definitely. Yeah, I told you, I don't, I don't walk. I sprint. So I was, I found something I liked and I started, you know, researching it, looking into it. And turns out nobody else in the area knew about it. So I gave a talk on it because I was the only one that knew anything. So it worked out pretty well. Now, you still have the, the Go Meetup for women who go. But yes. How many people showed up to your first meeting? And have you been able to grow that? Five. Um, yeah, so we have actually, we have, like, I think our highest was 15 or 20. I think the name Women Who Go, I have constantly, probably about every other month, um, some random person, usually that I work with, asks if they're allowed to go to the meetup because they're not female. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you be? They're like, because I have a beard. Wouldn't I stand out? I'm like, no, because 90% of the people who come are men. Like, we still don't have a lot of women in the space. So it's mostly saying you support the idea, not saying you are. Like, it's not an exclusive club. And so we've actually just recently, I mean, I we, we have started combining just with COVID. Uh, we're now, the Women Who Go Meetup is now meeting at, the same time and place or with the Utah Go user group. One, to boost attendance. Two, I think it helps the existing Go community get a better idea of what what me and the other organizers are trying to accomplish, right? Like we want more people to use Go and we want more women to use Go. And to do that, we need the other people who are already in the industry to, you know, help spread the word. So we're going to be meeting in the, with the, the Utah Go group, user group for a while just to kind of help get speakers because getting speakers is hard. It's still there though. So, but the Utah Go user group, we used to get, I think the day that Steve Francia came, we had almost 80 people show up. So we, we get it. We get a crowd. I've been to that. I've been to that meetup once or twice. Yeah, I know. You were there. I, I made you come after you had gotten off a plane at 2 a.m. and didn't sleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm always willing. I love meetups. Meetups are my favorite. Just they're relaxed and everybody's kind of just, you know, everybody's nice to each other and, and, and appreciative. I, I like them. They're super fun. No, I agree. All right. So at the end of 18, you've started a this user group. You've giving talks, and now you're going to start your second job in tech. So, what, what is this new job now that you're doing? Told I was going to be a, a data platform engineer, right? Working on a data platform. It was a Go shop. I haven't seen very many of these, but their entire backend was written in Go. And it, I, I mean, I'm still working at the company. Like, it's definitely in Utah. They have Go trickled in here or there with a lot of Ruby or Java. But this company was like only Go, and it was pretty unique um, and super fun for me because I love Go. And yeah, so I went and I started working with the team that brought in third-party CRM data into our... We have a small business client manager, Boyd conglomerate system. And so we bring in all of the user data that our customers use to contact their customers. And that's, I mean, that's what I started doing and what I'm still doing. This now being your second company in your career, you're still there for the last three years, essentially. Yeah. So you've got this pretty technical physics degree, right? Like, and you wanted to work on these really technical problems. And then 
you're saying that you're loving the work you're doing in ter terms of basically data transformations and data migrations. That's what you're doing. What is it about this particular type of work that you find um, that you're passionate about? What is it? Because it feels a thousand years away. I don't think it's a whole lot different from what I found that I liked in physics, right? You find that big data is new. And by big data, I mean like anything petabytes, you know. And so there's this whole idea of data space or machine learning or whatever that's super new and growing rapidly. And the fact that it's new and growing and you get to discover and learn, like, that's what I like. That's what I liked about physics. It was the fact that I was constantly learning new, hard things and that I could learn them quickly and, you know, be an expert about it, right? Like, because all physicists think they're experts in their field when there's only like three of them, right? But like, now I get to learn things quickly and I get to be an expert about it, give talks about it, um, help other people learn about it. I, I mean, I'm doing the same thing. It's just a different concentrated field. Right now I'm learning about data and data architecture and, and data engineering as opposed to physics, but like the same things are what's attractive to me about it. Tell me one of the hardest technical problems you've had, say at this job that you had to solve. And I want to get a better understanding of like the, the, the problems that you're facing here with the petabytes of data. That I mean, we're still trying to solve it. Uh, I, I don't, I, I think I, I've been working on, unfortunately, I've been working on the same problem for three years. And that's the fact that we integrate with 40 plus different uh, medical based, well, not all medical based, but 40 different CRMs, and they all have different backends, right? Like some of them are on databases from 1982, some of them are API, some of them are MySQL, some of them are FTP servers, like you have all of these different kinds of data, they all look differently, they all have their own deployment strategies and schemas, and we have to somehow take them consolidate them into something clean that works for our back end and give that that to our customers. And we have to do that efficiently. We have to do that reliably. We have to do that in a somewhat live, right? Like people won't, don't want their data tomorrow. They want their data now. But at the same time, the people we're integrating with are constantly changing what their data looks like and what they're available in their data. And so we have to somehow take their schemas and their data bottles and make it into a cohesive data model and give it to our customers live. And that's just like, there's so many working steps and coordination and things in that it's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard problem to solve. And it's, you're limited by tools and technologies and, and how fast your brain can work sometimes. So I'm looking into some of this right now, and I've been playing for a few days with Apollo GraphQL to act like a, a gateway that could federate anything, any data store behind it, whether it's in my world, I'd like them all to be GraphQL backends. But like, are, are you doing anything similar? Are you looking at GraphQL and GraphQL gateways? I would love, I, I mean, of course, I, I would love, and I, I've pitched this several times. I would love for our consumers, the people that consume the data from my platform to consume everything with GraphQL, 
Like they don't want all of my data, they want pieces, right? So if I control what the data is and they could pick it out, like, yes, I would love for them to do GraphQL. And so, yeah, I mean, I would love to expose things through that system. That doesn't help how I get it in, how I'm like, right? Am I integrating with their database server? Am I pulling it from an API? Am I pulling, you know, doesn't help how I get the data, but if like, if I could standardize how I expose that data that way, I would love to. I think that would be ideal, especially for like, I guess like some people want just your, like if all you want is somebody's name and phone number for a caller ID, why are you doing relational queries across who their doctor is and what, when they were born and like, you're, you know, it doesn't make sense when you could just pull out the little bits you need and send it along the way so much faster. Yeah, I think GraphQL is going to be the new DSL for everything. But one argument that I've heard against it is, do you really want front-end client developers writing queries, right? If you think yes. about GraphQL as a query. Isn't it better for them to just have a REST API? And I and I went with I went in the same direction you did. I said, no, why build a whole set of REST APIs? Why can't that I be? I have not be met a front-end developer who didn't prefer GraphQL to rest so i think they just haven't explored it yet like i think honestly back end to front end like that connection is where graphql truly shines because rest is it's hard to standardize json it's i mean coming from goes tightly typed structured like dealing with json's not fun if they start changing how the the JSON tags work or they start giving you formats you don't know and you have to start messing with casting types and all that stuff in the back end. That's horrible. But if you could just do a GraphQL and they say, I want this, K, you got it. That's ideal. I would rather do that over trying to figure out payloads all day, every day. And I, like I said, the people I who have used that I have talked to that have used GraphQL with JavaScript, love it. Absolutely would prefer that over rest every day. I mean, I haven't interviewed anybody, everybody, but I think it's a great tool. Yesterday, I got a Hasura, H-A-S-U-R-A, Hasura service to sit in front of my Postgres database to provide a GraphQL API for the database. I was able to read the schema and generate a whole GraphQL See, now that's what schema. I want. <laughs> and then I put Apollo server in front of that as my gateway, just as a one-to-one, -one, and then I wrote some tool, you know, I, I just wrote GraphQL, it hit Apollo, that then hit Azure, they hit the database and back. But the idea that I could stand up another data source behind Apollo doing the same thing, right? Like I think could, that's awesome. I don't know. I thought it was amazing because once you had GraphQL, I didn't need to write anything else. I didn't, I could have Apollo talk to the database directly, but I just feel like there's more work involved. Why not just stand up GraphQL in front of the database and get it all, if the schema changes, then that can kind of change, right? And now I'm trying to play with federation, which is one schema that looks like everything. But I'm starting to realize you need like different data sets that are using a lot of the same unique keys. And I don't know how real that is in, in the wild yet because I'm so new. So with all the different data sets that you're dealing with, how many different data sets end up really having data that's the same from a key perspective? Well, I mean, I guess you could say somebody's name could be a key, but unless you had maybe social security numbers or things like that across multiple data sets. So we're lucky in the fact that we pull from a lot of um, data sources that are already relational. 
they are generating their own keys, whether they're serial or UUIDs. Um, a lot of the ones that are medical based are using MSQL, MSSQL, so they're using GUIDs. Um, so we're getting a lot of unique identifiers already. And then we generate our own UUIDs on top of that, that we end up using as um, uh, foreign keys internally. But like, personally, I'm a fan of generating and maintaining my own foreign keys when needed. But at the same time, uh, I have run into several instances where I've broke my own schema by uh, doing not null foreign key dependencies, right? Like, so it gets hard, definitely, but I'm a fan of, of gen I, I like to determine my own uniqueness um, when I can, just to kind of create that, right? Because there's no reason why I, I mean, how many dentists have I had in my life? I've probably had seven. And so I exist in seven dentists database. So if I pull it, if, if my company goes and pulls in information from all seven of those dentists, I would exist in all of them. So, you know, technically that unique, I, I'm a duplicate data set that we have to create that uniqueness for, right? Cause I belong to seven different data sets, but I'm not it. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an, it's yeah. So that's like, that's the problem I have in my head, right? Like outside of your social security number, which could be in all seven data sets. If I wanted to federate a single view of you from all seven dentist databases, the only thing I, I would really have, let's say, would be social security number. If it was in there, then I could federate that to one sort of type. But I just don't know how much that, how common that is. It sounds like. Uh, and I don't know if they, well, I mean, once you start doing certain things, I don't think HIPAA would let you. Like, I mean, like they, there's, once you start messing with stuff like that, it's kind of, it's kind of rough. I mean, thank goodness I've never had to deal with GDPR where we might actually have to address that problem, but it gets, it gets the, the idea of uniqueness and data ownership starts mattering so much when you're dealing with compliance things that that makes it even harder, right? Because technically my information on dentist number one is belongs to that dentist, even if it is a duplication of the dentist of my information on dentist number two. So those are still unique, like when we wouldn't want to duplicate. So it gets rough. It gets, it, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. You're not making your own copies of dentist one and two and three in your own database, are you? Or you're trying to pull their data directly as like that to me is what Apollo Gateway and Maybe Hashura gives you. I don't have to have another database. That's the consolidation of all seven oh, we dentists. Oh, we definitely are. But that's the old way. That's not the, I mean, we're try, I'm trying to redo that um, in a way that's better, right? But at, at the, the old way was definitely, uh, I think that with, uh, right? There's, we run, with HIPAA, once you start dealing with people's medical data, um, sometimes we tend to over-engineer for the wrong reasons to try and avoid trying dealing with potential legal issues. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. I think smarter, right? We can be smarter about how we organize things and how we deliver things um, to keep still keep within compliance, but not over-duplicate, right? Or over-engineer things. And that's, yes, part of what I'm dealing with, what, what we're trying to figure out now is, how to not have exact duplications of everybody's database, but have just the data we need in certain different 
you know, locations and make it available to the people who need it, not to everybody. And it's, um, it's, it's definitely fun. I've been learning more about um, security than I think I've ever had to in the past. And I mean, shouldn't everybody learn about it? But yeah, I've never had to deal with it until now. So well, that's a whole nother can of worms, like <laughs> encrypting the data. So yes, access it. And then how are you going to do authorization at the like Apollo is supposed to be able to give you at the field level, like this person can only ask for these fields and this person can only ask. like this ends up being not what's bothering me a little bit learning this stuff is at some point I'm not going to be a programmer. I'm basically just going to be defining types and applying authorization to that. There's you're you're not no at a certain point you've, you've morphed into dba land and you're like i thought i i didn't think i ever wanted to do standard operations like there's definitely there, there's definitely a lot of room for expertise for the people that know what they're doing and we still need them but there's we're st also the more tools right the more tools and technologies that we get out of the box it makes it easier for people who aren't specialized to start learning it and implementing things and you know we're getting more things in software to help us that so yeah it's definitely there's a lot of but you're a right. lot of fun it's things. a dba i never thought about it that way you're absolutely right this is this is a dba role at the end of the day it's mapping a schema to other you know sub schemas out there or what do they call them again in the apollo world the, um subgraphs so it's like creating a a big graph across subgraphs and just dba I mean, yeah, but how many dbas mess with graph databases not very many but still at the same time that's what you're doing like at the end of the day you go into the data engineering space and you have you have just a mix of people who are writing uh like devops style pipelines and then the dbas and you're just kind of going back and forth to try and figure out um, where you fit in that as you create these huge pipelines to move massive amounts of data. Like you're still pro, you're, you, you know, where do you fit? There, you have to have almost all of the skills. Yeah, I'm learning all this now and I'm, my head is, I'm failing miserably. Like yesterday I was so, I was so, I felt like I failed so bad yesterday. I just like shut the laptop off and just left the house. And I, I've done that more than once, just walked away and been like, no, this is broken. I'll start over tomorrow. I, I know I will be starting over because this is a mess. Oh, my God. That, that was me. I said, after I'm done recording podcast today, I'm I'm deleting everything I did. And I'm, I, I literally said that I'm starting over from scratch as if I hadn't even begun, because now I've got baggage. I've got a mess. And it can't be this hard. Well, I mean, it is, but. Until you figure it out, it is like it's not it's not easy. So I, I feel where you where you're at there. And I, I do believe in the GraphQL. I believe in if not Apollo, there's I think something called Bramble written in Go. I, I, I think these gateways slash federation services are gonna be the future too. Um but we're still we're right in the beginning of it, so it's really hard to navigate. Definitely. And that's what makes it fun, is it's new. No, no, I'm I'm glad somebody is somebody like you is working on these problems because I, I think this this is the next kind of 10 years of problems that need to be solved right now. Uh, not Kubernetes anymore. Like like how how we're going to access data in this more distributed way. And um, 
It's going to be, hopefully I'm retired by, by the time it's all figured out, but I'm, I'm looking at it right now because it's, it is an interesting problem. Definitely. All right. Our hour is up. Mariah, thank you so much for talking with us today. If anybody wanted to get in touch with you after listening to the show to talk more about what you're doing and your and your path and all of that, what's what's the best way for somebody to reach out to you? Twitter's usually the easiest. Um, my Twitter handle's Captain Nobody One. You can also hang out with me on Twitch on Fridays. Um, I do have a website, MariahPeterson.com. All of my contact info is kind of aggregated on there. Um, so if you don't remember any of the handles, but you know my name, you can Google that. And it's the first, it's the website. That's my name. So perfect. Yeah. And we'll get all this in the show notes too. So people, people will be able to get you. And hopefully I can get back to Utah at some point. We're, we're trying, you know, we just got to get these vaccines, people to get them and we can start doing more and traveling because we, we got to, I'm, I'm getting stir crazy and I don't even travel. So. Talk briefly, one, one, <laughs> one couple more minutes. Talk briefly about the, the, the conference again. Okay, so Go West. So Go West is our conference, uh, our conference. So me and my co-organizer, Derek Laird, are putting it on. Um, and essentially we have two missions. Uh, well, we have a twofold mission um, to kind of promote um, this kind of unknown tech scene that is in the Rocky Mountain area. Um, one, we want to have local speakers um, who we want to promote local speakers, what they have to say and share that with the greater community. And then we want to bring um, speakers into the local community, right? People who may not be able to go out to some of the bigger conferences, but we can get bigger speakers and come in here. So we are trying our hardest, we're trying our dandiest to do a hybrid conference. So the on, people can attend online from anywhere in the world. The online tickets are donation only. So you can donate $0 if that's what you really want to do. Um, but give everybody access to the speakers, the great speakers we have here in the area around Utah, Colorado, Arizona, you name it, as well as some great um, international speakers who we have lined up. And yeah, we're trying to have a limited amount of in-person attendance. Um, our venue hasn't kicked us out yet, so hopefully we can get a couple more people and try our hand at an in-person conference. But we're really excited. We're really excited to see what the community uh, has to say. Uh, we had a great turnout, great participation last year, and we're just hoping for something even better this year. What's the date for the conference? October 22nd. October 22nd. So the London conference is uh, October 20, around the same week, actually. It uh, probably is the same day, but you know what? Ours was on the wiki first, so <laughs> we win. There's a, uh, uh, is it still on golang.org, right? The wiki? Yeah, the wiki, yeah. So you went. Oh, yeah, I'm just saying. Go. I I put it up there first. So we we literally announced our day last year at the conference. So we win. <laughs> go West wins. Go West wins. All right. Thank you so much for for spending this time talking to us about your uh, kind of career and your journey. And I think other people are going to be able to connect to that as well. So thank you. Thank you, Bill, for having me. So this is uh, Bill Kennedy and, and Mariah with the Arden Labs podcast signing off and hope to see everybody again real soon.